This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. It's late summer. The light is shifting incrementally each day now, tilting towards a new season. I notice this especially in those transitory moments of dawn and dusk. The light is moving towards a new, quieter season in the garden, and the colors are shifting with it as well. Some of the saturation is waning. Other shades are deepening, bright giving way very slowly, almost imperceptibly, to earthy. Part of being human includes a general sensitivity to color and light. As with any sensitivity, some of us seem to have been born with a keener sense and range of awareness of light and color than others. In the garden, color is one of the many elements that shift with light, time of day, time of year, larger geographical influences such as soil composition, nearby mountain ranges or bodies of water. The regional color palette of the American Southwest is different than that of the Great Lakes or the Great Basin or Northern California. Since ancient times, some people have spent their lives honing this understanding and appreciation of light and color, poets, painters, photographers, and other alchemists those who seemingly magically use their understanding of the chemistry all around them to transform one thing into another. A momentary glimpse of light and matter into a photograph, a weed and some water into a pot of luminous color. Joining me today to explore and celebrate the everyday magic of color and capturing it is Sasha Dewar. Referred to as a, quote, practicing alchemist, unquote, by Michael Tortorello in a 2012 New York Times profile, I recently witnessed Sasha at work over her boiling pots, turning ordinary everyday plants and plant parts into resplendent pigments, and I knew just what he was talking about. Watching her work was as magical as watching the seasons shift in front of me. Sasha Dewar is a gardener, artist, designer, and adjunct professor of the California College of the Arts. She is co-founder of Permaculture Institute, an educational nonprofit in support of regenerative design in fashion and textiles that explores sustainability and the preservation of traditional textile methods. Sasha is also the author of the Handbook of Natural Plant Dyes and Natural Color being released on August 23rd from Watson Guptill. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you, Jennifer. Talk a little bit about your own personal history and the influences in your life that led you to this interest and love of plants and gardens that eventually became this interesting career. Well, to begin with, I think I was fortunate because I grew up with very interesting parents who were also fully connected to the land and to the communities in which they lived in. So I always had a connection to nature and to being outside and to working with plants from a very early age. Um, we spent our time in between the downy coastal area of rural Maine, and then also we moved to the big island of Hawaii when I was eight. And so I got to know, besides uh, diversity of plants, is also biodiversity of culture and place. 
And so in some ways, moving to San Francisco, when I was finished with college, I, I moved to the Bay Area and I found this really right place to work with plants and to think about plants and also to be in a region in which I could have both the uh, plants that I grew up with in Maine, then as well as, as in Hawaii. And being able to see those plants all in one place was really kind of a remarkable thing. And so my love of plant dyeing kind of came via uh, working as a painter and getting sick from the oil paints that I was working with, particularly in college and afterwards when I attempted to be an artist in my very early 20s. And as I started to uh, delve into the, um, into the, particularly the urban garden movement in the Bay Area and into food systems and looking at food systems, I started to see as well that fashion and textiles were suffering from the very same issues that food was. And that was that these simple connected methods of, of knowing where you were and connecting to place and being able to tell the story of place most particularly through agriculture and through plants and knowing those plants um, had been lost in the very same way for fashion and textiles as it had for food. And so I decided to go back to school. I did an MFA at California College of the Arts. And during that whole time, I also worked within the Berkeley uh, public school system at the Edible Schoolyard and started building curriculum based on some of these ideas and experimentations. Um, being able to, um, you know, find find myself very intertwined within the same, you know, movement that was happening for slow food. There was also at the same time a budding movement for slow textiles and slow fashion, which I'm very happy to be a part of. So talk a little bit about the the sources of your illness in when you were um, studying painting and what led to that, you know, disease, dis-ease of um, <laughs> between materials and what you were doing. Because I, I think that is a great starting point for one of the reasons this is so important in our world, and it's a parallel to that in food or mm -hmm. building materials or whatever we surround ourselves with. Yeah, I mean, particularly because I had grown up being very close to nature and had this desire to make work about it and to practice it as, you know, as an artist. I was working with oil paints and doing large-scale paintings based off of nature and transformation processes in nature, ironically, but using a completely wrong material to actually both express what I wanted to say and also, uh, you know, a, a material that was making me feel ill um, working closely with it. So as I was painting, I would find myself feeling nauseous or, you know, or sick and needing to, I was going to school in Vermont at the time and needing to step outside of the studio and just take moments. And then I started an inquiry, both for myself and also for the professors that I was working with at that time to, uh, to delve or to kind of re-encounter ways of making pigments myself that actually might uh, speak of the materials and of the, the uh, processes that I was working with in a better way. There are many 
chemical and synthetic chemical compounds that are, you know, are made in ways that just like with fashion and textiles are extremely carcinogenic and uh, toxic for both you as a person who's coming in contact with it, also the people that are coming in contact with them in the factories, and as well, they are compounds that don't break down very well and uh, cause further issues in our environment. Mm -hmm. And depending on which pigments you're working with, too, some have greater impacts on health and safety than others, particularly the darker colors. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then talk about your process, uh, continue with this discussion of how your exploration of naturally derived pigments kind of progressed. Yeah, um, so it wasn't a very straightforward process to uncover ways and recipes of making color from scratch, particularly natural color from scratch. Um, And so I found this kind of fascinating and also at the same time frustrating. And, you know, a lot of natural dye books, too, that I was coming across, particularly from the 60s and 70s, although there were, you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of depth in environmental information and, you know, in getting to know plants and and IDing them, there were still many toxic uh, mordants being used and mordants are binders. And that can range from, um, you know, extremely (laughs) toxic heavy metals like, uh, chrome or tin or lead even to change or shift your plant color um, to lighter but, you know, still respectful metals like alum and iron um, where you need to be very aware of what you're putting into your dye bath. So it was not only uncovering these recipes but then continuing to think about, well, what makes sense environmentally and in different ways to work with and what kind of results can we get as we work with these plants um, and kind of revive these recipes. And so that became an additional challenge for me as I was self-teaching myself how to uh, work with plant dyes and then also realizing that a lot of uh, reviving of these recipes were uh, based primarily in connecting with farmers and, you know, also being able to have uh, a renewed interest from students and community members in, you know, experimenting with a wide range of plants and particularly first looking at which plants are non-toxic and how to, you know, then work with the weeds and the waste in the community and as well uh, eliminating the very heavy toxic metals when working with these plants. Today, we are exploring the magic of color, specifically the magical process of transforming the colors of plants and places into pigments and dyes with the artist, author, and alchemist, Sasha Dewar. We'll be right back after the break for more. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We began our conversation with color artist and educator Sasha Dewar before the break, hearing about some of her background in plant dyes and textiles. We're back now to hear more about the importance and beauty of this work, as well as about Sasha's two books on the subject. Welcome back. In a 2014 Pacific Horticulture piece that you wrote about seasonal palettes and colors, you discuss this connection between the imbued poetry of nature's color timing. 
Talk a little bit about how you set your own seasonal schedule of collecting in the home garden and um, how what, what you do with it from there. Mm-hmm. Well, I... I think one of the, you know, the most magical parts of plant dyeing for myself is always having something new to work with in a way. And even if you're working with the same plant, those plants can differ from year to year depending on weather and changes in the soil and, you know, different different elements. There's almost every every factor of the environment can affect your color, which is something that I find really wonderful and intriguing um, to work with in this practice. And, you know, it's, this has been something over the years, too, being I, I teach a soil to studio class at the California College of the Arts every spring. And it's really fascinating to work with the plants that are on campus. We, we are based on the Oakland campus in Northern California. And many of the plants there even shift from year to year. So there was at one point we were working with fallen black olives that fall into the faculty parking lot. And one year we were able to get really beautiful blues and even purples, depending on how you shift the pH of the water. And the next year, all we got were browns from the same tree. And so that was really intriguing to me. And, you know, and a lot of those factors had to do with the fact that it actually rained that year and it rained very late into the season. I think it rained through May and those trees didn't pollinate um, in the same way as they had the year before. And so there were just all of these storytelling factors due to the environment and getting to know, you know, changes in year to year, not even, you know, the moment to moment or what you pick at the farmer's market. But there's... um, you know, there's longer patterns that are involved, too, in color making. And that, to me, is really fascinating and sort of speaks a lot about this connection to our natural world and to knowing it through all of these different levels of depth and, you know, literally depth of color, too. And so, you know, even in harvesting plants and dye plants as well, you can pick a plant a little bit before it's ripe, like with wild fennel. When I dye with wild fennel earlier in the season, it's a much lighter yellow than when it's at its most vital point, which is, you know, typically towards the end of August or early September. And then you get these neon bright yellows. Whereas when it, um, you know, when in the beginning of its cycle, it's much more pale. And so just the life force of the plant at different points in time are really interesting in how the color palette shift and change. So do you keep copious notes? Definitely keep journals. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a very visual person, so <laughs> these journals often end up in terms of imagery, too. So I take a lot of photos. I'm constantly documenting through photography. Um, I also take samples and have, you know, tons and tons of samples, all from classes that we um, have done over the years and workshops, et cetera, because you're always learning something new. And even somebody else's perspective is really interesting. And, you know, one shift or change that they might see or observe. So, yes, I'm always documenting and keeping notes, et cetera. Um, And then it also builds up experientially, too. I mean, I do treat this practice, um, you know, somewhat... (laughs) Half as artist, half alchemist, half just, you know, basically as I love 
working with plants as a chef would in a way too. And there's always something that's exciting. And, you know, I love developing new recipes and kind of just seeing, you know, what you can do with what you have. Talk a little bit about this idea of using weeds and waste as mm-hmm. resource materials and both the the, the beauty and, and abundance there and the resource sustainability of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks as much as anything else to sense of place is the, you know, those common everyday plants that are often overlooked and, you know, often unseen as resources in our communities or, you know, within our own backyards. And um, so I love that. I mean, I love I'm actually trained as a conceptual artist. So there's something, you know, in that nature or notion itself of being able to see the unseen that I really appreciate about plant dyeing. And, you know, fortunately, in this process of natural color, a lot of weeds and a lot of waves can make gorgeous color palettes. So, you know, when you think of, of, a, of, of a fruit, for instance, like the pomegranate, most would think that the seeds are where you would get the color because they're so bright and they often stain your hand. But chemically, it's not the seeds that make the best dye. It's more of a stain or a surface color. The best dye comes from the rind, um, which is often overlooked. And so for centuries, thousands of years, people have used the pomegranate rind. And I just think that's so wonderful because it's like getting to have your color and eating it too in a sense. (laughs) You can really enjoy and grow a pomegranate and then dye beautiful uh, palettes from it at the same time. And you get to have this full human experience. And so, you know, that's something where I really admire the practice of permaculture, where you're thinking about what's called stacking functions or getting as much out of one process as possible. And so I've become very vicariously through plant tying a better chef, also a better gardener, you know, more adept at at mapping and looking at my community and being able to see things or like systems um, in ways that I, I hadn't imagined before. And I love that idea of not only um, seeing the unseen, which is just a, a beautiful concept, but the idea that you could take in our area what are what amount to weedy pests, non-native invasive mm-hmm. plants like the wild fennel, and not only deadhead them so that they don't produce more seed, but use them for something really beautiful and um, and useful as plant dyes mm-hmm. and fabric dyes that are safe and non-toxic. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, another one of my favorite dyes uh, is oxalis, <laughs> which carpets the entire Bay Area every spring. And it's just really satisfying to work with that plant on so many levels, and especially the cheers you get from many gardeners or people who work in the park services who, you know, hadn't considered that as a possibility um, as one way to work with a weed that's that invasive. But, you know, another thing, too, is, is, you know, as well, just thinking about food waste and waste within our communities and uh, you know, getting people both to see those as resources, but also to make additional beautiful things that help the economy within a community. But it's also great, too, because one of the things that I realized while working at the Edible Schoolyard so many years ago and developing a textile-based curriculum there was that this sense of being able to create or to make work with something as simple as a weed 
and water from your garden without needing to have a huge budget for materials or to think about art with, you know, being within four walls, that art can be created in the garden in different ways with very little um, and also can be created from, you know, the byproducts of your local restaurants or, you know, different tree cuttings that come down in the wind. And so there's, there's just ways of thinking about creativity and creativity just like with good food being a right for everybody in a sense and being easily accessible and so you um again i'm gonna sort of riff off of something you just said this idea of permaculture and stacking functions and health and beauty led you to found the play on words institute permaculture Talk a little bit about that institute and your mission for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Permaculture Institute was founded several years ago. Um, as I mean, it really came out of the work that I did during my thesis projects at California College of the Arts um, and also just starting to teach workshops and thinking a lot about sustainability and, you know, food and textile systems as coexisting. And, you know, and as well, just thinking about sustainability and thinking about sustainability for fashion in a sense where people, I think, were too eager and still are in some ways to just replace materials and to consider that a way of becoming more sustainable. And it's actually so much more than that. It's, you know, it's about connecting fully to systems. It's about being able to use what you have in new and existing ways and, you know, and everything in some ways can be a tool. Like, I think that's, you know, that's one thing that I truly absolutely love about plant dyeing is that I see it as a very easy tool for people to imbue more meaning in their lives into, you know, ways and aspects of taking care of what they have. Because if you, for instance, create something that's experiential, like you grew these beautiful sunflowers in your yard and then you're able to use those byproducts of that sunflower after you enjoy them in a vase even you can still use those plant parts to then dye a dress and because you have this experience in dyeing this dress and it connects you emotionally to a process where you grew a flower that became a pollinator and became beauty in your home and you know maybe you ate some of those sunflower seeds too that you have a full holistic experience and therefore want to take care of something that you created from that process. Um, Or at least it was made in a non-toxic way, and then you can compost it and create more sunflowers and decide what you want to do with those sunflowers from there. So it's it's really about, you know, entry points and, um, you know, using these processes as tools to think about the full system. So you give us a great sort of starter Um, instructional manual in your first book, The Handbook of Natural Plant Dyes, which came out several years ago now and is um, a nice overview of of some some good plants that you might find and, and how to work with them, a basic discussion on dye baths and some introductory in information on mordants and, and prepping materials uh, to be dyed. You have a new book coming out, Natural Color. It's coming out this month. Uh, Talk a little bit about what people can look forward to in Natural Color. 
Yeah, natural color. Uh, it was really fun to make this book. It was it was sort of a, a dream come true in a sense because I got to collaborate very closely with friend and photographer Aya Brackett, who's uh, she works quite often with many local chefs in the Berkeley area, but um, a lot of slow food luminaries as well. And so her attention and eye towards photographing the plants in the process were really amazing to witness and to work with. Um, so that was a change, being able to work particularly with her and visually bring this book to life. It's a very visual book, which I'm excited about. Um, also, too, the book includes several essays um, and where I get to delve into different aspects, both of ideas and experiments we've worked with with Permaculture Institute. Um, like, you know, we've posted a number of collaborations with chefs using the byproducts of the meals we create where our participants get to eat meals and then also die with the byproducts <laughs> of the plants that were used in the meal. So I got to write about that and wrote also about weeding wardrobes um, and thinking about weeds and, you know, also selectivity <laughs> and, you know, being able to put one thing into use towards another. So uh, being able to write about these ideas also medicinal color is a big theme in this book. On top of that, we have seasonal base plant recipes uh, throughout the entire book, elevating the weeds and the waste particularly. Sasha Dewar, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jennifer. Sasha Dewar is a gardener, artist, designer, and adjunct professor of the California College of the Arts. She is co-founder of Permacouture Institute, an educational nonprofit in support of regenerative design in fashion and textiles that explores sustainability and the preservation of traditional textile methods. Sasha is the author of the Handbook of Natural Plant Dyes and Natural Color, being released on August 23rd from Watson Guptill. You can follow Sasha on Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. Join us again next week as the conversation on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places continues. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit MyNSPR.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.